it feels nice to be at a point in my life where I have my own business and I can be part of the community at a greater level and just be, be feel like I have a family that's just beyond you know the four walls of my, my home because I like coming in every morning and seeing the same faces and making the same coffee and having the same chats and you know seeing people bring in their children as they're growing up with a venue and it's it's I think by far and away the most rewarding part of, of the growth of the business. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. After years working in the industry and gaining enough skills and confidence, many hospitality professionals roll the dice and start their own business. But as they soon discover, it's hard to maintain a viable business with rising food costs, rents, wage costs, and the whim of the diner. Throwing bushfires in a pandemic and things become even trickier. What impact has the last few years had on those building their dream? Eric Morris is the owner of Bistro Clementine in Sydney. Eric, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. It's good to have you here. You opened a beautiful little establishment in uh, Sydney um, just a few years ago now. It's been a pretty wild ride, but you're still here. Well, what's it felt like for you? <laughs> uh, it's It's been the, the biggest challenge uh, of my life for sure. I think anyone trying to guide their business through the ever-evolving landscape, be it hospitality or otherwise, I would probably give you a similar answer. Um, it's been a really big challenge. But uh, on the other hand, it's also provided a lot of learning opportunities and a lot of time for personal growth, I think emotionally and uh, professionally as well, um, which you know you can't really put, put a value on. So you've kind of got to balance out sort of all the, the downsides uh, with some positives, I think. And, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, when we cross over this river, there'll be uh, greener pastures for all of us. And tell us a little bit about Bistro Clementine. When did you first um, see the site and realise that's where you wanted to, to build this restaurant? Well, I actually started uh, a few years earlier at a cafe location next door. So we're in Piermont down the end of Harris Street. If you've never been, it's a little peninsula uh, close to the water. And I had wanted to open a little uh, wine bar or restaurant with some friends in Newtown or Enmore a few years earlier. And we weren't ever able to bring that to fruition, mainly due to a lack of viable real estate at the time. And uh, I had all this money that I'd sort of taken out from the bank and didn't really have a job, so I just needed to, to get started on something. So I remember heading down Harris Street one day to go look at a business that was for sale on Gumtree, which would end up becoming the cafe. And I had never really walked down Harris Street before, and there are these beautiful old trees sort of lining both sides of the street. And as you come to the cusp of where we are on this corner of Harris and Scott, sort of opens up into the water, and it's, uh, it's quite a beautiful sight. And so that sort of was the first time that I, I felt like I could make something work in this particular part of Sydney, which I previously hadn't had much experience and I'd mainly worked in the inner West. And um, I sort of battled it out at this little 20 square meter coffee shop for a few years. And then the, um, the shop in the corner, which is where Bistro Clementine is now, uh, became available to lease in 2018. Uh, and so I had always wanted to do a wine bar restaurant concept 
I did the coffee thing for a few years just to try and get a handle on running a business by myself. I'd been left in charge of running someone else's you know, floor before, um, being the GM of Bloodwood and you know, working previously at lots of other restaurants. But uh, I think going out on my own, I wanted to start off small. And if, if I failed, I wouldn't feel too bad because, you know, it wasn't my whole heart into it. So I decided to throw my full self into it in 2018 uh, when that space became available. What was the state of, of that space when you took it over? And what did it, what did it take to um, bring Bistro Clementine to life? It was, um, it was a pretty sorry state uh, when I picked it up. Uh, it had been a few mismatched concepts before. The, uh, the previous owners had run it as a sort of tapas and in inverted commas uh, restaurant, which was just an excuse to have a whole bunch of small plates that didn't have any cohesiveness whatsoever to my mind. And before that, it had been a Middle Eastern restaurant, I believe. And uh, there were three, three tile styles of flooring within the venue. I think two types of elevation. Um, the walls were this really cold, dark gray and the architraves um, were all, for lack of a better term, poo brown. So there wasn't, there wasn't anything really attractive about the, the location, but the, the bones of it were fine. Um, there was this wall that was dividing essentially what had previously been two terraces, um, which I had knocked down by the landlord. So it was a, an open space. And then from there, we, we pretty much gutted it and started again um, with the exclusion of the kitchen, which we sort of left because the bones were fine. It had extraction, um, you know, where we got new furniture for it and new uh, cooking equipment, but the whole internal space had to be completely redone. Um, which suited me fine because, you know, I've, I've worked in venues before where, uh, you know, you go into them and there's a really great sense of um, direction when you're working. You know, it's all about workflow and having bought my previous uh, venue, it hadn't been really designed with any considerations to that whatsoever. So I'm glad that we didn't have any restrictions on what we could do. We had a clean slate, which, you know, although expensive, um, definitely I think helped bring the whole concept uh, to life. Well, I want to talk about that concept in a little while, but take us back to when you were young. Where did you first uh, step foot in the hospitality industry? My, my first uh, job in hospitality was at Gloria Jeans in Hornsby, Westfield, when I was 17. Uh, I didn't care too much for school. I didn't do terribly at it. I didn't mind going, but I'd, I'd rather be doing something else. So, I, um, I took a lot of time out in year 12 because I had a lot of major work, so I didn't have to be at school too often, and I uh, would be working at Gloria Jeans. And I, I really enjoyed the process of crafting something and learning something new and working with a, quite a big team and sort of the, the thrill of the pressure when everyone's sort of pushing as hard as they can. And from then I was hooked. You ventured over to London at a young age and ended up working with uh, Ottolenghi, of all people. How did that come about? Uh, that was a, a pure, pure fluke. I, um, I worked in the Gloria Jeans as a, as a way to gain a skill that I could use internationally, assuming I could speak the language. And I'd always wanted to go to, to England, London in particular. And when a friend and I you know, went in our gap year, uh, I just applied for a, a few jobs on Gumtree, I believe it was, and 
you know, you sort of do your little research and look at the venues and see what they look like. And Otolenghi stood out as something that looked like a nice venue to work at. I mean, I, I never really had been in restaurants before. I'd only been a young, young guy growing up in the suburbs. So the closest I really got to fine dining was a local pizza shop. And uh, it was a whole new world working with, with the Otam. Uh, he wasn't there all the time. I was in the Islington store. I think they were opening up um, uh, the, the Notting Hill store at that time. Uh, and he was sort of in and out, but he was a really genuine uh, person to work for with a, a really strong sense of hospitality. And he was very friendly, very open, um, answered all of my questions without hesitation. And, and the group of people who worked at that particular venue at that time uh, it was just such a wonderful experience, I think, as a, as a first uh, restaurant to sort of be part of. And I was pretty much just stuck in the little coffee corner on the side. And occasionally I'd be asked to do some some dinner shifts, but I was mainly there during breakfast and lunchtime. But it was my first true um, exposure to really delicious, well-thought-out, executed food that had uh, a great sense of of pride and self and had real personality. And that sort of drove me forward to when I came back to Australia to, you know, keep on pursuing hospitality and, and make it my career. So I think without working, without that passion at the start and being exposed to it, I don't know if I would be where I am now. You mentioned coming back to Australia. What were the steps that you took to um, take a career path in hospitality? I decided to um, to go to a, a hotel management school. I didn't really know much about how to get entrance into hospitality. I think like a lot of people who, who begin, you know, you might apply to a restaurant and they often need someone with experience. That was certainly the case uh, where I was growing up. I was in the North Shore around the Hornsby area. So I just applied at all the, the local you know, restaurants, the Westfield, and no one would really hire me. Uh, so... I decided that going to a hotel management school would probably open a few doors that I wouldn't otherwise be able to. So that was my first step into the career, just signing up and showing up for the, the course. Um, but aside from the academic part, which I don't think has much use truly, unless you want to be in hotel management specifically, if you wanted to work in restaurants, I think the best thing is just to show up and sell your work for free for a few months and just get a foot in the door. But um, I, I did meet some good uh, mentors whilst I was there. So there was uh, Peter Kokoruto, who was at the time the GM of China Doll uh, on Finger Wharf. He was one of my, my tutors. He taught front of house. Um, there was this restaurant that they have where, you know, the local business people can spend $25 on a three-course meal and all the students prepare and serve you, which I don't it's, you know, unique to them. It is a, a common theme amongst hospitality uh, colleges, but he was teaching that. And I pestered him enough until he gave me a, a job at China Doll, and that was really where I uh, started to, to learn more about the restaurant industry and sort of put what I was learning into practice in a real-world application. Do you have any stories from your time working on the floor at, at China Doll? It was all about whirlwind, really, um, at, at, at China Doll. Uh, I remember just the busiest services just about of any venue that I've, I've ever worked. Um, I was probably too young to have any real, real good stories there. You know, I was, um, I was bouncing around from, from work from 6 o'clock till 10 o'clock, getting a train back home to Barara at midnight and then turning back up to school at 7 in the morning. So I didn't really have any time to make any stories there, unfortunately. 
what, what was it about the, the front of house that um, attracted and lured you? Uh, I think it was the, the, the romance of the front of house. Originally, I wanted to be a cocktail bartender. I thought they were you know, the, the coolest part of the team. Um, I worked with this really great Frenchman in, in Otolenghi when I was there, and he just had so much suave and charm that uh, I thought that would be a, a fun thing to do. So that was originally my goal was to, was to get into a cocktail bar. But um, unfortunately, wherever I went, I was always just pushed on the floor as a runner, either due to inexperience or perhaps they just didn't need anyone in the bar. Uh, so I sort of stuck it out there and I, I found a groove, made a little niche for myself. And um, over time, I, I found that that wine was just as appealing to me as cocktails were. And there was more room for me to to banter along with customers and to learn something that had a surprisingly um, large amount of depth to it that I hadn't considered before. So working on the floor appealed to my intellectual sense where there was a lot to, to constantly learn. Um, you know, menus were always changing. You're exposed, especially as a young person, to so many different styles of food. And I worked across a vast array of restaurants so I could learn about all these cultures through their food. Uh, and then supplement that with you know, coming across new wines and spirits and all the rest of it. So I found that that, that suited my, my personality um, and didn't seem to have such late closes behind a bar either, which was a plus. You've worked at many venues across Sydney. What were the real key venues and moments that uh, shaped who you are? After working at China Doll, um, I w- worked at Est at Establishment uh, in the time of sort of Frank Roberts and Frank Moreau being on the floor before the Ivy opened um, to pillars of the Maryvale uh, behemoth. Uh, Peter Doyle was still there as well, and uh, Josh Nyland uh, was in the was an apprentice in the, the kitchen as well. So there were a lot of really interesting people. And I think that working in that environment where there's so much detail and precision uh being executed at every level, I think that was probably what honed me the most in, in the craft. Uh, I'm a, I love rules <laughs> and strategies and procedures. Um, I think without them, you know, it can be very chaotic very quickly, uh, whether you're in the back of house or the front of house. And working with those people who had really spent, you know, their whole lives becoming the best in their fields was really, really inspirational for me to, I think, just have the self-discipline to continue and push forward and really try and, and bring the best every day. And I remember when I was, you know, in a running section, I worked with a, a fellow called James Sexton, who was young waiter of the year a few years back. Now he's the winemaker at Main Ridge in the Mornington. And uh, I think I'd been bollocks by, by Frank Roberts at the back for, you know, not dropping a plate at the right time or something considerably minor but still you know uh quite a big deal and i just felt like complete shit and i remember james just saying it's not what you fuck up today it's just fuck up less tomorrow you know whatever you didn't do well today just come back and just do better at that and just gradually you know chip away at it until you are where you want to be and i think that that level of professional expectation is really something that that helped me grow. I don't know if it works for everyone. I don't think everyone likes being in that kind of pressure, but 
I um I really enjoyed it, and that was probably the most definitive definitive experience uh, that I went through. Otherwise, working with uh, the guys uh, from Shady Pines, opening the Baxter Inn, the Swarehouse Group, uh, I was a sort of sommelier bartender there. They created a role for me because they wanted to have a wine program. I wanted to learn how to tend a bar. Like I said, it would have been a dream of mine forever, but I sort of got stuck uh, waiting tables. And those guys just made such great venues that were all focused on customer experience and giving a, a great product, but having a really good time. And if you create that for your guests and you can create this experience, then, you know, everyone benefits. And that, that was something that I, that was very different to working at a venue like Est or the fine dining venues where I worked before where, you know, good, you don't see good service, you know, it's very quiet. Um, it's very self, self-assured, uh, but you don't notice it. Whereas in venues like Hubert or, you know, Frankie's or Baxter Inn, you know, they're so lively and there's so much energy and passion, which still comes across as a great product, but then it also elevates the experience to such a level that, you know, they became one of the best bars in the world and they have you know, this whole stable of truly amazing venues, um, which are known the worldwide. You mentioned your love and interest for wine. Were there any, was there anyone on your path as a mentor that helped you towards becoming a sommelier? Uh, There were quite a few along the way. You know, a lot of um, sommeliers uh, are very open about their craft. When I was working at Est, um, there was Matt Swoboda who would go on to open Love Tilly Divine and uh, Dear St. Eloise who was studying sort of at the same time with me. He wanted to, to go down that path and, he would often challenge me. We worked at Best Sellers together, uh, and we often would have tastings sort of in the back room. Uh, I think Joel Amos and Mike Benny were also very formative at that time, very, um, you know, fun people who would reward curiosity. Uh, but in a pro- more professional sense, uh, working at Bar and Grill, Rockwell Bar and Grill, uh, as part of the opening team, uh, Sophie Otten was an amazing uh, mentor, you know, not a lot of people would give me as much of their time as what she did. And she, um, she writes, uh, you know, across Australia in the wine industry. And I think is very well known and regarded. And certainly, uh, she was just very patient and fed my curiosity while sort of keeping it under control. Cause sometimes I could maybe ask a few too many questions during service. Um, but she was probably the, the person who who inspired me the most to continue uh, learning, even when it seemed like you know it was it was too much to take in. I think I was 22 or 23 when I went to go do my uh, quartermaster sommelier certification, and I hadn't really picked up the books up until that point. So I just you know went to the library, got all the recommended texts, and just read and read and read before service, during our break, after service. And Sophie was always very, uh, very helpful in keeping that flame uh, going and that passion sort of stoked. So I'm very lucky to have had her as part of my um, my path. Well, what makes a great uh, sommelier for, from your perspective and um, what, what is it that you like to deliver for a great experience? I think a great sommelier tailors an experience to their customer. Everyone's knowledge is going to be different in the dining world. 
So being able to move past your own uh, preconceptions of what wine are and being able to, to talk more on the level of a customer, I think, is what really defines great sommelier. And then beyond that, being able to communicate in a way that that people will be engaged with. And that does differ from, from person to person, but most sommeliers that make me want to be better at my job tend to speak in more evocative and emotive terms, uh, less so about, you know, the specifics of the density of vines per hectare or how long something's spent on lees or what have you. It's more about the story of the person who made the wine. And I think that we're very lucky um, that wine can carry the sense of terroir and sense of person and place. Uh, it's like a time capsule. And the context of that wine is what makes the wine more enjoyable than just what's in the bottle. So I think a good sommelier will tap into that and try and elevate you know, the, the craft of what the winemaker has done into something that's more of a tapestry of the culture and the world around us at large as well. You, you mentioned Bloodwood a little while ago, um, uh, an amazing uh, local uh, restaurant uh, hub of the community in Newtown, very different to the likes of Rockpool Bar and Grill. What was it like um, running the floor there compared to somewhere like that? It was, uh, it was a, a great challenge. There's so many personalities working at Bloodwood. You know, Newtown's a, an amazing place. I, I have a great fondness for the inner West and the, the menagerie of people who live there. There's a lot of artists, um, you know, a big queer community. Uh, you know, everyone's quite young. Everyone's like a lot of students. It's really a challenge to be able to, to make that team of, you know, sort of pirates cohesive. At least it was, you know, a decade ago. Um, but it was a lot of fun. And there's, there's so much love in the community there. Like you said, it's a, it is rather important to the Newtown area. They were sort of the first venue of that ilk, you know, coming from Claude's fine dining themselves and creating this, this really lovely community focused um, venue, which catered to all types of people, all types of diet. You know, there's, there's no pompousness or anything else. It's just really simple food done well. And they're, they're doing big numbers, you know, like they're doing 200, 220 people on a busy night out of this tiny kitchen. It's like six by two and a half meters. <laughs> you know, it's not that much space, three people crammed in there with a dishy. So it was, it had this energy to it, which, you know, it was really special to be a part of. Um, and, you know, right now that they're, they're a piece of furniture in Newtown. They're, they've, they've gone the distance. I think they're up to their 11th or 12th year, just about. So it was really, um, it was really nice to be able to be part of that story for, for a short time. And I got to inherit a really beautiful venue off of Gabrielle Webster, uh, who went off to open her own venue and then onto icebergs and a few other bits and pieces on her own path. Um, but she was also a wonderful influence in the wine scene. And she left me with, you know, a, a great one that's to be a custodian of and a really great team um, to lead as well. So, you know, it's not so much that of, of what I did, but it's just the, all the, t I guess the whole element of Bloodwood is built upon all these wonderful different people. And it was just nice to be a, yeah, a block in that piece of Lego and that tapestry. You mentioned that you were the custodian of a, of the menu it was passed on to you. Well, 
But was it quite different to uh, drinks menus you'd experienced before? Is it tailored different for that market? Uh, yeah. So, um, so taking over the wine list uh, from Gabrielle was very different to what I had experienced before. Um, just a few years uh, before I took over, the natural wine scene had really started to make an impact in Sydney. So Gabrielle was a, a big proponent uh, of the wine scene um, with, you know, Yama, James Erskine, uh, Lucy Margot, Coda Barrels, um, you know, Dandy and the Clo. And that, that was a, a big influence on me. I'd mainly been, you know, studying, you know, Burgundy and Bordeaux and you know, the, the wines of Germany and, and all these old marks, which uh, were sort of very distant for me to access unless I was working at somewhere like Rock the Wine Grill where we were opening up all these wonderful European wines. You know, they're, they're quite um, exclusive. So coming to work at Bloodwood, which had a more community-focused angle, you know, the wine list sort of portrayed that by showcasing these younger uh, domestic winemakers. And that, I think, opened not just for me, but for, for Sydney in general, you know, this this new wave of, you know, lo-fi, minimal intervention, natural wine, however you want to you dice it up. Uh, but it was very much a movement of, you know, by the people, for the people. And I think, you know, in, in other industries besides ours, we could all em- embrace that ideology a bit more and might come off a better way for it. Let's talk about Bistro Clementine. You opened it the same year as the bushfires and there's been a pandemic since as well. What's been some of the real challenges for you as a first time operator? I think the the most consistent challenge I've experienced since opening has been uh, staffing. You know, we're a, we're a small venue, so we require a, a small but, but competent workforce and that's becoming rarer and rarer in the, the days of COVID. It was already hard before. I remember um, our head chef at the time, uh, Craig Gray, when we opened, he he had left by the end of the year. So we opened in February 2019 and he resigned in November 2019. And we had, you know, three or four weeks to sort of find someone before he left. And then we would have the Christmas holidays and then reopen for January. And in that time, we weren't really able to find someone to fill the role that adequately, but we, we did patch the hole for a while. Um, and then we reopened in, in 2020. Uh, our chef, I think, was there for one week before he left to New Zealand, you know, and didn't really give me any notice. And we were, I feel sorry for anyone who came in January or early February because it was me cooking. Uh, and I'm by, by no measure a, a, a chef. I was just doing sort of simple dishes that um, Craig had, had helped me uh, write so that I could get through until I found a, a new chef. You know, which we, we did maybe four weeks later. And I think uh, by March, we had COVID. So that fellow who had started was a British citizen, didn't have any any support. At least it didn't seem like he was going to have any support um, when the pandemic hit, so he had to leave. And then it's just been a ever-changing roster since then until this year where we've landed on our chef, Belent, who'd been working at Cafe Parsi prior to the lockdowns. And he's he stayed on this year, but so far he's you know been the most consistent chef that I've had. I think the whole time I've had a venue, you know, chefs have been the hardest part of the puzzle. 
as a front of house operator, I'm, I'm dependent on all of my staff to be able to support me in, in sort of achieving my concept um, because I'm not able to step back and, and do the job back of house. I can make cocktails and I can make coffee and I can run a floor, but I, I can't cook. <laughs> so, so finding, you know, people who you can rely on is really, really difficult, but also very important. Uh, you know, if I could do it again, I, I would probably look to hold off until I could have a chef as part of the business. So there's some skin in the game. You know, when you're, when you're hiring people, there's certainly a, a relationship and a rapport that you, you hope keeps them going in the venue and you want to create a, an environment that they enjoy being in, but people's circumstances change and priorities change. And as a result, it's meant that the consistency of the product that I'm able to offer changes. And that's, that's been the biggest challenge so far is I might have whatever I have in my head is what I want to achieve, but without the, the skills and manpower to back it up, you know, it's not something that I can deliver on every day. And that's, um, that's a horrible feeling as a, as a proprietor. Tell us about what the offering was at Bistro Clementine prior to the pandemic and, and what you've had to change it into to adapt and survive. So the, the Bistro originally opened as sort of a, a modern take on a European-style Bistro. So Craig, who was the chef who opened, had worked in France for two years uh, in the UK for three or four years before starting. So he felt like he had a quite a strong finger on the pulse. And when we were talking in sort of the conceptual stages, we liked all the same venues uh, in Europe. So the menu was quite modern. We had a small range of small snacks at the start, uh, French-inspired a menu that you know, had a lot of charcuterie elements to it. We made our own pate. Um, we would do veal brain, sorry, uh, veal sweetbreads. We play around with, you know, very classic French ingredients, but you know, repackage them in a more modern offering, and that that worked for a little bit. But where we are in Piemont is a very uh, conservative area. And we weren't able to get the dining community that maybe you would have in Surrey Hills, Newtown, Darlinghurst, who might support something that's a bit more progressive. The wine list too was sort of in the same ethos. It was European natural wines and Australian small producers, uh, which isn't by any measure like changing the game in Australia. This is a, sort of, I think, what most younger uh, hospitality professionals enjoy eating and enjoy drinking. So naturally you'd want to try and mimic that in your own venue. Uh, but moving through the pandemic and the bushfires and having to, to pivot, I guess, being the term, we have started to offer more of a classic bistro range. So we dropped, you know, a lot of the smaller, you know, bite-sized dishes, um, that you could be a bit more playful with in favor of, you know, more classically established sort of modern Australian bistro classics that say, you know, like burrata's everywhere at the moment. So we have a, you know, whatever the season's burrata is, um, we'll still do a, a terrine and a pasta, you know, maybe a, a classic duck and uh, beef dish. But we've certainly had to go a bit more conservative in our offering 
Um, also because there's not any room to make errors anymore. You know, the margins are so fine uh, that we have to really appeal to the, the broadest selling categories at the moment. So whilst we might want to do something that's a bit more left field using ingredients that we would really like to play with, I think the area where we are has more determined the menu that we're able to offer. So by doing something a bit more classic, you know, like steak frites is always a really strong part of our menu. Um, just to everyone doing a hamburger, but doing a nice hamburger, you know, it's an every man's food. So we've had to follow that, that path a bit more still with our, our style, we would hope. So it's, it's, you know, still speaks of, of us. Um, but definitely it's a lot more different to what we expected that we'd be able to do when we opened. Hospitality is renowned for slim margins and, uh, restaurants surviving the first couple of years, um, the odds are not very good uh, in the industry. How, how have you managed to survive so far in these couple of years with with bushfires and the pandemic? I've only really managed to survive by not taking a wage, um, which is the harsh truth of it. I um I started my cafe, and I think the, the most money I ever took in a year would have been about $50,000 as an income. And I think I average about twenty-five dollars to $30,000 a year. So the only way I've managed to get through is by being okay with that. And they're hoping that my sacrifice will lead to something down the line. And I'm just hoping that, you know, it's all worth it. I think there's some, some benefits of having your own business, you know, like being able to be your own boss is, sometimes a great reward. It's also sometimes a great hell. Um, but generally I think I like it more than I dislike it, which is why I've kept going. And there's definitely a sense of pride um, that I don't want to give up. You know, I want to try and see this through to a point where, where I can break away and be proud of what I've achieved. And I think I just had to come to terms with the fact that, you know, money is only worth as much as you want to put a value onto it. Uh, and I'm able to have a roof over my head and, you know, I eat all my meals at work practically. So I don't really have to pay for anything there. And, you know, that's, that's just the lifestyle that I've chosen, but I can understand why so many people give up along the way because it, it takes so much sacrifice to be able to push ahead. And you really have to, to look forward to the next stage. And, you know, I'm, I'm grateful to have my, my fiance who's very supportive and she, she keeps me on the rails when I feel like, you know, throwing it all away. Um, but it's, it's really just, just that. I mean, it's just how much are you prepared to give up? And I just realized I was prepared to give up pretty much everything to try and make it work. But, um, you don't really know that until you're, you're faced with the reality of, of that situation. So, you know, that's the point that I'm at now. And I'm just hoping that next year when we get through, the most current phase of where we are on the COVID spectrum that people come back uh, with their vengeance and they're prepared to, you know, maybe pay a little bit more than they were expecting to pay a year or two ago, because I think we're going to have to see some prices increase. You know, uh, everyone's demanding a fair wage, which I believe in. Superannuation is going up. Rent's always going to be going up. And I think we have to start valuing our input uh, as a, as a collective 
you know, I, I still get baffled walking past places that can try and offer a bacon and egg roll and a coffee for six fifty, seven fifty, eight fifty. You know, I don't think that keeping the market artificially low in favor of competition is going to help anyone in the long term. So I think we all just have to start valuing our own our own efforts a bit more and hope that if we do it as a collective, then people will just have to, <laughs> to deal with it. You mentioned at the top of the show that there's it's been a period of time of learning for you and there's been positives of as well. What, what positives has there been and, and what's changed for you? I think a lot of um, a lot of it's just been personal growth and having to manage people. Your your perspective shifts a lot when it's your bank balance that's been affected by your decisions. It's kind of easy to be a bit more of an artist when you're being paid uh, a consistent amount every week. But I think when you're the owner and you have to you know make concessions or make decisions that will affect your livelihood, you just have to, I think, grow beyond. Uh, the constraints that you've placed on yourself. I mean, I know that when I first opened the, the bistro, I had such a strong idea of what I wanted. And I thought that I'd, you know, I'd, I'd go to my grave with that uh, level of, of pride. And I just learned to be able to grow away from my ego uh, as, as much as I could so that, you know, we could have more customers in the venue who would enjoy themselves more. Because at the end of the day, that, that was what was more important. I just wanted to be able to do that and, you know, have, have our original core concept sort of survive. So you sort of learn to, to be able to move on. Um, definitely. I think you learn an appreciation for, for all the work that your staff do and, you know, try and make sure that you communicate that to them. That's something that I'm, I'm still learning to do effectively. Um, I tend to get sort of bogged down in my own thoughts of, you know, how am I going to navigate this week to get my bass paid or, you know, save up to buy a new fryer because this one's on the fritz or, you know, what do I have to cut here that, that I forget sometimes to say, you know, really to, to my staff how truly deeply thankful I am for them to be there and supporting me because, you know, without them, I don't have a venue. So you, you learn an appreciation for, I think, for, for all elements that go into the, to making a venue. And I certainly uh, also learned to, to say sorry for my mistakes because, you know, I, I do make a lot of them. So I, I know I can be challenging to work with sometimes because I can uh, be a million places at once and, you know, drop the ball a little bit. So learning to be softer on yourself can sometimes be good too. What do you love about what you do? Uh, I, I love making people's experiences memorable, really. I like talking to people and getting to, to know them. I mean, Blogwood taught me a lot about community, working in Newtown with the Newtown locals. Um, they have the festival and, you know, seeing how tight knit everyone was as a business community was really inspiring. So it feels nice to be, you know, at a point in my life where I have my own business and I can be part of the community at a greater level and just be, be feel like I have a family that's just beyond, you know, the four walls of my, my home. That's probably be, probably been the most inspirational part of it, and I think what keeps me going because I like coming in every morning and seeing the same faces and making the same coffee and having the same chats and you know seeing people bring in their children as they're growing up with a venue and it's it's not something that you can replicate I don't think too terribly easily so that's been I think by far and away the most rewarding part of, of the growth of the businesses you know 
becoming part of the community. Well, Eric, having experienced your interpretation of hospitality, um, you, you are one of the best in the country. It's, it's genuine and beautiful, and I hope to see it continue beyond this. Um, and I know how much you're putting into this. We've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear your story. I know there's so much more to it, but um, please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Thank you so much for having me on, and I hope um, everyone else you know, keeps the good fight going and you know, we'll go through it together and see each other all the pubs soon, I hope. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.